This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Thank you so much for being here. Great to have you as always. I figured we would start it off today with a Buck Brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief. I know it's been lost in much of the headlines right now because there are Trump tweets to discuss or there are uh, media battles back and forth that everyone's very focused on. But there are two very real battles happening, two cities that are currently in a state of uh, of siege that haven't been getting nearly enough attention. And it's interesting that President Obama spoke yesterday about his counterterrorism legacy, essentially just going on record to explain to everybody why he's been doing all of the right things, why his decision-making processes when it comes to national security have been so sound. And yet we have two uh, situations that are, but one I think is uh, just deeply negative, although complicated, and the other is stalled. Let's start with uh, the first, the, the first situation, the first city, Aleppo. The Syrian government's forces uh, have managed to push into the old city of Aleppo. Now, Aleppo has been the heart of the anti-Assad resistance, um, and the Syrian government's troops and allied militia are poised to completely seize uh, what had been— I mean, Homs was the sort of birthplace of the Syrian revolution— but Aleppo was the most important city, the most populous city, and it looks like it is uh, falling, uh, falling into Assad regime hands. Uh, now, the Assad regime has gotten a tremendous amount of help from Russia and from Iran, and that seems to have been a difference maker on the ground here. Uh, rebel defenses, we refer to the anti-Assad, non-ISIS resistance, or at least in many of the sort of journalist accounts of this, they're referred to as rebels. Uh, They are falling away, and there's been flight from the eastern part of the city of Aleppo because people know that the Assad regime is coming, and there will be reprisals, and this is uh, going to just continue to be a grinding uh, bloodbath. The Syrian government and Russia have both rejected a ceasefire for Aleppo, and uh, they've kept up this offensive. So Aleppo looks like it's falling to the regime. This is quite a turnaround. I remember a few years ago, it was considered likely 
it was considered likely that the Assad regime would be more or less pushed up against a coast uh, and there would be a rebel control of most of the country um, and that maybe the Assad regime would, would crumble and fall, actually. Uh, maybe the Assad regime would no longer be in in place at all. Uh, there were a couple of very uh, really audacious suicide bombing attempts on senior Assad leadership, uh, senior uh, Alawite leadership of the Assad regime. And this was earlier on. It, it seemed like Assad, that his days were numbered. It seemed that he was going to be gone. And now, of course, much of what had been the rebels has been co-opted or overtaken by either ISIS uh, which is or, or Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the official al-Qaeda franchise there. You have over a half a million dead. It's hard to see how the international community could in any way um, view its role in Syria positively. I don't know how much worse it could really be. There has been the usage of chemical weapons. Remember, there was a victory lap by the Obama administration specifically on the issue of chemical weapons because Assad promised or agreed to get rid of them. Chemical weapons have been used dozens of times. We don't pay attention to it. The destruction of civilian areas has gone on uh, largely unabated. And what we have is a civil war that is just churning through casualties, has spilled over into Europe, massive refugee problem for the region, for countries like Turkey and Jordan, but also a million refugees to Germany alone, uh, terrorist attacks in places like uh, the Bataclan Theater in Paris and elsewhere, uh, directly tied to either the refugee flow or the rise of ISIS in the Syrian civil war, as well as many lone wolves here. I mean, it is a legacy of disaster and failure. I don't think you got any sense of that yesterday from President Obama when he was talking about it, but it's still... um, the, the, it's still playing out right now, and the reality of it is that it is things are quite bad. Uh, Aleppo is falling to Syrian government forces. Looks like Assad will regain control of a majority of the country, and now we're faced with the choice that we never wanted to have, which is Assad or ISIS. And in that situation, the international community, whether it wants to admit that or not, goes with Assad. And that will mean that this dictator who was willing to use jihadists in the past and allowed the rat lines of suicide bombers to go not just unimpeded, but assisted into Iraq to blow up U.S. troops and to cause massive problems for us there, um, that this dictator will be able to continue on in power in large part because of Russian intervention and the Iranians coming to his aid. So that's that's the situation right now. That's a sort of broad stroke of what's happening in Syria. Um, the anti-Assad resistance is as weak as it seems to have ever have ever been. Uh, ISIS is still in control of Raqqa, obviously, in eastern parts of the country, but the Assad regime is not going anywhere. And Russia and Iran have achieved what they view as an important foreign policy and national security objective by propping up the Alawite dictator of Damascus. All right, that's on that side of the equation. Then we also have what's going on in Mosul, um, where we are directly involved. We have U.S. 
troops that are advising and assisting on the front lines of that conflict. And that has largely stalled out. There is a serious delay right now in trying to push deeper into the city, in large part because the resistance that we or that rather the Iraqi forces that are in the lead have uh, have come up against is fierce. There have there has been the deployment of hundreds, hundreds of suicide car bombs against the uh, Iraqi units that are deployed inside the city. Mosul, as I've told you, is bisected by the Tigris River. There's the sort of western part of the city and the eastern part of the city. The eastern part has always had more sort of Kurdish control and and, uh, more of a Kurdish influence in population. The western part is just Sunni Arab, uh, predominantly Sunni Arab, and that's also where the mosque that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi announced his caliphate if you recall, when they seized, when the Islamic State seized Mosul a couple of years ago, uh, that mosque is on the western, in the western portion of the city. So the plan, the the plan for retaking Mosul involves about a hundred thousand security forces. I mean, it's a it's a massive, uh, a, a massive coalition of units that include militia, Shia militia, that include Kurdish Peshmerga which are really the sort of standing army of Kurdistan, although we refer to them as militia, I guess, as a sort of concession to the Iraqi government, not to make them feel like there's another military that is operating you know, in their backyard. Formal military, that is. And you have these Iraqi units, including the counterterrorism service, the CTS, which has been used as the tip of the spear. But if you use the tip of the spear continuously, and they don't have any, any respite from a very high operational tempo, it can be blunted. And they look like right now they're just running up against incredibly uh, both resilient and determined ISIS fighters who seek to hold the city. So you have this force of 100,000, and this is also very interesting. They've decided, they decided in the, in the uh, battle plan to encircle the city instead of leaving a corridor to the west. If they left a corridor to the west, you might have had of the four or 5,000 ISIS fighters who are dug in, who have built tunnels underground, who obviously have fixed fighting positions all over the city, who have been storing weapons and uh, are, using, are hiding behind civilians as human shields, uh, which also means that there's a lack of heavy weaponry. And, and Mosul is... Uh, especially the, the the deeper into the city you get, it's just a maze of narrow streets and alleyways. It's perfect for ambushes. In fact, armor can't even necessarily get into some parts of the city because the streets are so narrow, the buildings are so close together. And the Iraqis are relying primarily on up-armored Humvees given to them by Uncle Sam, uh, paid for by you and me, as their that's sort of their their main armor component. They do have some tanks and, and armored personnel carriers, but they're they're mostly using Humvees. So they've run up against this resistance. The fighters that are there, the call it five thousand maybe total ISIS fighters, including a lot of foreign fighters who have sworn to die in place. Um, they don't have a corridor of escape, so they can't go back across the Syrian border. And there's reporting, and in fact, it's in Reuters today that the Iranian militias were the ones who insisted on closing off that escape route. You know, this, is a, this has a major implications for the course of this battle for what is Iraq's second largest city, maybe third after Basra now, depending on how many people have fled. There's been seventy to 80,000 uh, internally displaced uh, 
Iraqis who have fled Mosul so far. There could be 100,000, 200,000, who knows, but there could be hundreds of thousands more that are uh, fleeing and it's winter there. There's shortages of food and medicine and they're going to be living in tent cities set up by UN and other relief agencies in the, you know, in the region. Uh, but the battlefield is such that they can't move much more quickly into the city center because they're coming up against all of this, all these dug in fighters, U.S. Uh, airstrikes, which have been helpful, become less helpful the more you go into sort of the dense center of Mosul uh, because you don't want civilian casualties. And so they're less uh, apt and, and less uh, accepting of calling in, you know, an airstrike and. That just means that everything is getting harder. Everything is getting more difficult the, the, the deeper into the city they go. This has already been happening for seven weeks. Uh, they've, as I said, sealed off the city in terms of escape. And, and they also didn't want to allow large refugee outflows initially because they figured that ISIS fighters, and I'm sure this was accurate, would use the escape routes of civilians to try to smuggle out their own fighters. So instead what you have is the city com- really sealed off and you have this massive force, this multi-sectarian, which in the Iraqi context is not necessarily a good thing. This multi-sectarian force has sealed off the city, and they are just moving in street to street, house to house, trying to clean out these 5,000 fighters. I mean, this is going to go on certainly for weeks, maybe for months. The furthest estimates I've seen from Iraqi military on the ground um, are that by next summer, they think that Mosul will be pacified. Uh, that doesn't mean that there won't be some lingering insurgent, uh, insurgency here and there. Um, but this city has been under the thumb of the Islamic State for two years. It has allowed the population to become uh, terror, thoroughly terrorized. They've already been suffering. And while they are pleased, based on all the sort of media accounts you can read, that they will be liberated soon from their ISIS captors, they also are concerned that they're is a now officially recognized, the Iraqi government passed, the Iraqi parliament passed a law that said that the Shia militias that are in place, including some former Shia militia commanders who were part of what would be considered ethnic or sectarian cleansing back in 2007, 8, 9, uh, 2007 and 8, uh, that they officially recognized them. They're now under the umbrella of uh, Haider al-Abadi, the prime minister of Iraq. His government out of Baghdad controls these Shia militias. But to Sunni Arab residents, and Mosul is a Sunni Arab majority city, these Shia militias are really just an appendage of Iran. They are there to do Iran's bidding, and they don't trust them. There are already reports of these militias in other places uh, engaged in atrocities, uh, war crimes, you know, killing civilians, reprisal killings, those sorts of things. So you can imagine that there's some sense inside of Mosul that they'll be trading ISIS for Shia oppressors. Whether that's true or not, that, that certainly is factoring into the mindset there. So this is an incredibly uh, volatile and, and difficult situation. It's very bloody, and it is not something that's going to be resolved anytime soon, although I do think that progress is being made. Uh, this is not getting much attention in this in this country, because of a whole bunch of reasons, you got the Trump transition and other things happening. Um, but this is a city that the U.S. had to take from Saddam and then had to retake, at least in different parts and pieces, from the insurgency, from the uh, jihadist insurgency of the 
uh, of al-Qaeda in Iraq and other sort of affiliated groups numerous times. And here we are again, U.S. troops deployed, about 5,000 deployed in Iraq, uh, hoping that they can help retake this city, which, I mean, they've been invaluable up to this point, but now the Iraqis are going to have to largely do it on their own. And then after that, that the country doesn't devolve into a civil war because the armed faction, Shia Sunni Kurd, they've gathered up their troops. And once they've no longer got the sort of unifying effect of Mosul, of retaking Mosul from ISIS, it's really anybody's guess how this plays out in terms of other contested areas. Mosul is a contested city. Kurdish and Sunni Arab claims to it. Kirkuk is a uh, contested city. Um, there are other fissures, sort of fractures, other lines of tension in the country that will get worse, most likely, uh, when there's this mobilization that dies down a bit after ISIS is gone. So, yes, ISIS eliminated from from Iraq is a critical step, but there's a lot more in terms of challenges for this country. Let's close out the buck brief there. You are leaving a secure space. Cell phones may be turned on. Disavow all knowledge of this meeting. Remember to protect sources and methods. Maintain good OPSEC at all times. 888-900-3393. Phone lines open, team. I'd love to hear from you. It would cheer me up on a gray, dreary day here in New York City. That's where the Freedom Hut is. BT Dubs. Back in a few. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, you thinking about getting a firearm or an accessory coming up here for the holiday season? Maybe as a gift for yourself or a loved one? Best place to go is YHM.net. That's Yankee Hill Machine's website. Yankee Hill Machine is a third-generation family-owned company, and they are celebrating their 65th anniversary in business this year. They are a fantastic outfit. Chris and Kevin Graham stay true to their family tradition, and they produce some of the finest rifles and sound suppressors on the market. Chris and Kevin are the owners of Yankee Hill Machine. They're great guys. They love guns. They really support the Second Amendment. They take a lot of pride in what they do, and their continued innovations have made YHM a strong force within the AR-15 and more recently in the sound suppression industry. So for the complete line of YHM products, go to yhm.net, yhm.net. That is Yankee Hill Machine, yhm.net. Dot net. I don't know why. I just got all radio, radio voice on you there. Uh, 888-900-3393 is the number on the phone lines. Um, I'm hoping we'll talk about some sort of just random fun stories today. Oh, here we go. Donald Trump's person time of the uh, people mag... Wait, person of the year from People Magazine. Or Time Magazine. Sorry, I get these things confused. Time Magazine's uh, person of the year. I guess we can't say man of the year anymore. Is that is that really a thing? We, I mean, if it's a man or a woman, we don't specify. We just say person of the year. I guess that's the case. Um, Donald Trump is man. Of, yeah. Uh, Time magazine gets it right on this one, at least. Uh, you got to say Trump is man of the year. I still, um, there's still a part of me that is trying to get used to the uh, reality of a Trump presidency and a Trump administration. So we will have to see how this all 
shakes out. Uh, but so far, I have to say, I think it is exceeding my expectations somewhat. So far, I'd have to say that I think that there is uh, plenty of reason for optimism, at least. Uh, and we'll talk a bit about another check in that column in just a few minutes here. 888-900-3393. Team, we'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team phone lines open 888-900-3393. Got some spots open. Let's chat. It's like one of these days in New York City, you're like, why am I getting out of bed? It's gray. It rained all day yesterday. Blah. It's a blah kind of a day here in New York. So cheer me up. I'm sure it's lovely somewhere else in the country. And even if it's not, I'm sure you've got interesting things to say. Josh in California, you're up first. What's up? Hey, Buck. Shield Tai. How you doing? Shield Tai. I'm all right, man. Good. So I was doing some research uh, about you know how the Civil War started. And uh, basically, I think... The, I'm not saying that the U.S. is going to go into civil war or I'm promoting the civil war. Well, you mean the U.S.? Uh, I was thinking we're talking Syrian civil war. You're talking about the U.S. civil war. Oh, I'm talking about, yeah, U.S. civil war. Okay. And how the, uh, you know, the environment of how the civil war in the, uh, you know, with Abraham Lincoln, how that all started. And basically what's going on in the U.S. today can really relate to how that civil war started and basically what the war was fought over. We, we all know was slavery and money. Basically the, the South wanted to have the cheap labor from the slaves. I don't think it was more about slavery as much as it was, you know, so much about belittling, belittling the African-Americans, but that easy money and not having to pay people to do the farm work that they were having. Them wait, 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 I'm sorry. Go, go back. What are you saying? Well, what I'm basically saying is the the reason the Civil War was fought was... Well, what does this have, I'm just wondering, Josh, what does this have to do with anything, out of curiosity? I mean, is this just like, this is a curiosity oh, you have okay. today? So, no, no, sorry. Okay, so what it has to do with is... Um, wait, wait, wait first, and why, why was the Civil War fought, in your estimation, before we... And then you can tell me why we're talking about this, but what were you saying before that? Okay, so the reason the Civil War was fought was over slavery. And, yeah, okay, yes, right. That, I mean, it was over slavery, okay. so... Yeah, and and power between you know disputes between the Republicans and the Democrats, you know, North and South, basically. Okay. And, yeah. Um, and so today's political environment kind of relates to how the Civil War started. In that, when uh, Lincoln was elected, other states had said that they would secede if Lincoln was to get elected. Same thing that's happening today. Uh, you know, they said Donald Trump is getting elected. We're going to secede from 
the union, or at least they're trying to. Especially, I you know I live in California, so I'm. I mean, are you are you really walking. comparing this the uh, state of the U.S. right with with when slavery was an active institution and to, to right now with Donald Trump in terms really? No, no, you no, were no. you think you think I, there's going to be a you think there's going to be like a war or something because I can t- there's not. Well, no, I, I think we're not as primitive as we were in the 1800s, and I think we're beyond that. But a lot of the things that happened that caused the Civil War are really happening right now. And again, we're we're way past that as you know as a society. We're past you know bringing a war to our own country. We have way too much. Okay, so you're saying there's some there's some general similarities. I mean, it, it, basically, you're saying there was a divided country politically before the Civil War, and we're a divided country now. And that, that's what you're saying. Yeah, and and I hope what I'm trying to say is, you know, I hope that America really realizes how good we really have it because we're so sheltered, and it's almost the media's fault because they make it seem like America's so bad. But if they would really show what's really happening in like Aleppo and the civil wars that are actually happening, where countries really are truly divided to the point where they're killing each other, I think people would really start to appreciate what we have in America. All right, Josh, thank you for the call from California. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, look, historical analogies are. Uh, and by the way, I do want you to call in. Don't I just I wasn't really sure where Josh was going there and wasn't really clear on what the relevance to anything was. Um, but historical analogies, first of all, of course, they're always different because you're talking about different periods in time. Right. There's there's always going to be uh, things that don't line up. So you automatically can assume that. But even beyond the historical analogy or beyond the built in problems of a historical analogy, I think it's also important to keep in mind, yeah, perspective is necessary. Context is necessary. Uh, I do not see us in a uh, – I do not see this the, – the Trump administration leading to anything terrible. I, I don't like the hearing that the Trump administration is going to be fascism, and I, I also don't think that we should start to worry. And Josh didn't say this. I mean, I'm not saying he did, but that we're going to be in some sort of a – an armed, there'll be some sort of an armed uprising against the Trump administration. I mean, that's this is not going to happen. So it's not constructive to spend uh, much of our time on it uh, at all. So there's that. Um, I want to talk about something that like is is happy. What do we have that's happy? There was the what kind of a dog was it? The I know this is a total switch, uh, total switcher switcheroo here. Uh, meet Patton the Golden Doodle. Will he become Trump's first dog? Uh, the Trump family doesn't have any any animals, um, but there's Lois Pope, who is a prominent philanthropist in Palm Beach, Florida, said in an interview that she is in possession of a nine-week-old golden retriever and poodle mix that will soon become the first dog. Um, she knows Trump well. She's known him for two decades. So it looks like they may... Why? Look, I love I love all dogs. Not a golden doodle person. I know. Some of you probably think that that's that's crazy. They're so cute or whatever. And I know they're hypoallergenic or something like that. So that's why people like them, because if you have an allergy, if you have an allergy to dogs. Um, But still, of of the options you can get, you know what it really is? I'm kind of anti poodle. Don't like poodles. And and I'm sorry if you're a big poodle person, if you're a poodle breeder listening to the show. Apologies for me offending you but i'm just poodles are very low on my list i take chihuahua before i go poodle yeah i know 
Um, but it looks like there might be a golden doodle at the White House. Isn't is it a Portuguese water dog the Obamas have right now, or do they have golden doodle? Do they have golden doodles? I can't remember. Uh, Bo and something or other are their first dogs. Again, why, why can't we get like a yellow lap, golden retriever? You know, this is America. Uh, that's my thought on that. Eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three. I'll be right back with much more news in a few. This is the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, team. Said I'd love to hear from you, and I mean it. Chris in North Carolina, what's up? What's happening in the Freedom Hunt today? You know, man, it's all right. It's kind of a gloomy day at <laughs> NYC, but I can tell you're, you're going to cheer me up with either some brilliant analysis or some witty repartee. <laughs> I'm gonna tr- I, know, I, really, I really have a question, actually. I wanted to see what you thought about. I thought it was kind of strange that Time Magazine made Trump the, the person of the year just simply because, you know, it's, it's Time Magazine is, is is mainstream, and um, the mainstream these days tends to just you know be completely left. So, is why why do you think that they nominated him? It seems it seems like a, a weird move. Um, wait, why why did they nominate Trump? What do you mean? Yeah, because 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 time is you know time is is so mainstream and the mainstream media is like they're always just so left, and then to come out and do that it just seemed a little bit bizarre to me. It seems like maybe they they would have nominated somebody like, well, Beyonce. Uh, look, I I I think that even for a left leaning magazine, I mean, look, Donald Trump is so clearly far and away the most uh, impactful figure of the last 12 months i mean he's going to become the most powerful person in the world and he has complete i mean he was it was just a phenomenon the whole thing whether you you know love it or hate it it, it was what it was and i think that that's i think that's pretty clear I, I don't think there's really much debate or discussion about all of that so you know, uh, we'll have to sort of see. Um, we'll have to sort of see how it all shakes out. I, I just think that it's an obvious choice, quite, even for a left-wing magazine. I mean, this was the year, 2016 was the year of the Trump, for sure. No no way around it. You know what I mean? You're right. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, I just I mean, wanted I, you know, that. Look, uh, there was, I, I even, I think I even made uh, a little made a little joke about somebody who was uh, some media person who said they should give time person of the year to Hillary and it's like, really? You're gonna go that route? Well, see, I mean, gonna... I, would, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been surprised if that would. You know, if that would have happened. Honestly, uh, um, yeah, I'd be a little much. Uh, I think Trump is far and away the obvious choice, and that's why they went with it. But, but I mean, look, I, I hear you in that they probably didn't want to do it, but they. And then again, also, you know, who cares about Time Magazine? It's probably a better a better point to make here. Who cares what Time Magazine thinks about much of anything? At this point, it's... Touche, touche. You know I mean? 50 I, years I, I, ago, I, I, maybe I, I, Time I, Magazine. Oh, ooh, but now I don't think anyone cares. Den- uh, right. Shields high, Chris. Thank you for calling, man. Uh, good to talk to you. Denise in Oklahoma, you're on the Buck Saxon Show. Welcome. Hey, Buck. It's great to talk to you again. Um, I wanted to first say to all the listeners that got to listen to the Battle of Lepanto. Thank that you. you did. I li- 
I listened to it about three days ago for the 12th time at least. Oh, that's very kind and, of you. Thank you. Well, and I shared it on my Facebook because all this in the Middle East, it made me kind of look at things a little differently. And with the Iranian control now moving into Iraq and Syria, is it possible, worst-case scenario, that the capitulation of the Obama deal with Iran, which is basically what we did, uh, could it now be that the Iranians, instead of ISIS, moved to that area and formed their own caliphate, being a nuclear caliphate? This is quite a question. Just, well, it just, like I said, listening to the Battle of Lepanto made me look at things so totally different. Yeah, I first of all, I, I think it's uh, worth pointing out that the Iranians view themselves, and and this is not a sort of crazy mullahs running the country uh, post nineteen seventy nine revolution thing. I mean, the Iranians view themselves as the inheritors and now the custodians of a of a great and an ancient civilization. So there there is a sense that they and and this is like I said, this isn't uh, a function of. Uh, of the malocracy or anything like that. This is just Iranian perception, Persian perception. If you talk to people in this country, sometimes people refer to Iranians. Uh, Iranians in this country refer to themselves as Persians, but they do have a, uh, a pride of being from an, an ancient civilization, and they definitely have aspirations to be the Mideast's uh, hegemon, and they're really butting up against Saudi Arabia right now. Uh, you know, there there hasn't... They, they don't sort of speak in the same terms of uh, of exporting a, a caliphate as Sunni jihadists do, or not exporting, I should say, building a caliphate as Sunni jihadists do. Um, but there are similarities, and I think the Iranians do have uh, in their minds that they can more or less control Iraq, uh, which by population is is more than half Shia Muslim, and there are a few other mm-hmm. pockets of Shia across the Middle East that they can sort of use as outposts of their empire, and if they are all under a nuclear umbrella, then all of a sudden Iran does become a, a true regional power. And that's certainly what it aspires to. Global power? I don't know. I mean, because Shia Muslims are only about 20-ish, 15, I think, 15 to 20 percent of the global Muslim population, something like that. Um, so, Denise, it's something they're thinking about for sure, but uh, they're a long ways away from that. But they're, if they get nukes, which I think they believe they will in about 10 years, um, they are very likely, in my opinion, uh, to be much more aggressive than we've even seen them up to this point. And, and they're pretty aggressive already, you know what I mean? Right. So we'll see. Uh, uh, we'll see. Well, um, I would like to wish you a very Merry Christmas if I don't get to speak to you again before then. Oh, I, I certainly and, hope you'll listen again before then. But, yeah, if we don't get to speak Oh, I again. listen every day, Buck. I oh, listen thank you every so much. day. So. And I recommend you highly to all my friends that that the information that I get from you, it, it it helps to understand what's going on in the Middle East. And I love the buck brief. I Thank really you so much. That. Thank you, Denise. They even cheer me up on a day when I can use it. I appreciate that. Denise in Oklahoma, Shields High. Thank you very much. Um, there, there were, I mean, there were um, Shia caliphates, by the way. I, I think that's worth noting. I mean, there was the Fatimid Caliphate, which is like 11th, 12th century mostly 10th 11th 12th century 
so there, there, are, there have been Shia caliphates. I, I wanted to be clear about that. It's not like the caliphate is a foreign concept to the Shia. Um, but yeah, uh, that's we'll have to see what the Iranian... I haven't had a real Iran... I'd like to get somebody on who will sort of maybe speak a bit more to the long-term vision of the Iranian regime, uh, such as it stands right now. I think that would be an interesting discussion to have, especially going into a, a new administration, a Trump administration, that I think will be much less pliable than what the Iranians have become used to over eight years of Obama. And that's probably a, a fair way to put it. Um, so we shall see. That's definitely... Uh, Put that one in the hopper, too. Um, 888-900-3393 if you want to talk on the phone lines. We'll get into some uh, interesting stories in the next hour, some some random stories, news stories here and there. I meant to uh, mention, and I don't know if we'll have time to really go back to this, but um, Trump has made a another announcement about a, a major pick. John Kelly, a retired Marine general, is Trump's pick to lead Homeland Security. Uh, another very strong choice. I think this has to go in the column of uh, decisions that Trump has made that uh, are impressing people and uh, and that some of the people that have been most uh, openly doubting Trump uh, look at would look at this and say, OK, well, th- this is a legitimate choice. This is a legitimate option. Uh, and in fact, a a laudable one, I think. Um, so maybe we'll talk more about uh, General Kelly. Uh, but we got a lot planned for the next hour and the third hour. Obviously, we'll talk a bit about Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor Day. Got much more to discuss, team. Back in a few minutes. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. We're joined by Andrew Stiles. He is Heat Streets politics editor. Andrew, great to have you. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, bring us up to speed on the latest with the Jill Stein-led recount effort in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Uh, what is happening here? Uh, well, basically, all these uh, recount efforts are uh, starting to flame out, I think, as many people expected. Uh, Michigan courts have uh, rejected her attempt to have a recount. And I believe uh, in Wisconsin, Trump, they, when they started recounting some of the ballots, Trump was actually leading. He, he gained votes after them. Uh, Pennsylvania has said that she didn't file in time, and it looks like, you know, as many people could have predicted, that this effort by Jill Stein to, you know, uh, pursue recounts in the Midwestern states that Trump basically won Trump the election are turned out to be a big waste of time and money. But Jill Stein did raise a lot of money for her, you know, own political efforts by doing this. So you have to kind of question her motives there. Yeah, I mean, this this benefits her. Uh, do you think there's also an aspect of this that it's just sort of uh, lashing out from the left that they 
want to have a recount just because, you know, Trump can't be legitimate. There must be something wrong here. And even if we can't find anything wrong by posing or, or by proposing this recount, by pushing for this recount, people can always say that, well, maybe there was voter fraud. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just looking for what could be motive here other than just Jill Stein lining her political pockets. Absolutely. I think that's uh, has to be considered as a, as a motive for Democrats to just get these recounts out there, muddy the water, get people aware of them, spread the news to anything to undermine the legitimacy of Trump's presidency, kind of right out of the bat, kind of cast this cloud over whether or not he's a legitimate president. Uh, they did this in you know 2008 and even 2004, uh, which was less of a clear-cut case. There was a lot of Democrats claiming that you know Bush didn't actually win re-election, and there was allegations of voter fraud and such, anything to sort of undermine the legitimacy because a lot of Democrats just refuse to accept that Trump won in the first place. Uh, also, uh, another election of sorts. Well, not really an election, I guess, but a contest. Donald Trump, person of the year. I mentioned it in the last hour. He beat out Hillary Clinton and Beyonce. Beyonce, I, I really feel like uh, that's that's the one that people are going to be talking about. That, <laughs> beat out Beyonce as person one. of the year. Why Beyonce would be person of the year is beyond me. But I'm not I'm not up on these things. Maybe you are. Uh, no, I think you know Trump is sort of the the obvious choice, and I think it's fitting that it's Time Magazine giving him this honor, kind of a a once great arbiter of elite consensus opinion. Uh, now a very has probably halved in size uh, and relevance, if not more so. And I like some people have been pointing out on Twitter that among the most recent covers time ran were just a series of covers showing how Trump was melting down. He was never going to be the president. And of course, he wins. And now he's person of the year after repeatedly dismantling the elite consensus opinion about whether or not he could win. It's, you know, kind of a, a fitting tribute. And I, I don't know if the time person of the year even means anything these days, but uh, he's won it and he was the obvious choice. Although I guess if you had an online poll, maybe Beyonce would come out on top. Now I mentioned right before, I mentioned right before we came into the second hour here that uh, general John Kelly, who's a retired Marine general, is Trump's choice to lead Homeland Security. General Kelly lost his son in combat in Afghanistan. I think a lot of people see this and at least say more more than qualified to hold the, the role. And people, uh, I, I think, will largely, certainly conservatives and people on the right will largely applaud it. But the main piece I see up on Heat Street right now, the site for which you're the politics editor, uh, deals with a different side of the Trump transition. Uh, General Flynn's son. That uh, th- that tweet did not go unnoticed. Uh, tell us what happened here and what the outcome of, of the whole Flynn dust-up has been. Yeah, so uh, Mike Flynn, uh, Trump's national security advisor, is into a, uh, well, his son anyway, is in a little bit of hot water over tweeting about this uh, conspiracy known as Pizzagate, of which I, I've been out of the country, and I'm have, it's one of those things where I've been trying to uh, like learn as little about. But as far as I know, that there is some in the WikiLeaks emails, John Podesta. There's some imagery or allusions to pizza, and some people have pieced together that maybe uh, 
the use of the word pizza is a code word for some uh, grand conspiracy among the international elite to, to rig things. And uh, there was even a there's a restaurant in D.C. where someone brought a gun to someone was almost killed. And this Michael Flynn uh, has tweeted, you know, until it's proven false, it, this has to be a story. Uh, like all the things that were uncovered in WikiLeaks, we need to pursue this. But this was a little too much for uh, Trump's transition team, and they've kind of ousted him as a result. Yes, indeed. And your latest piece, by the way, switching gears here, Lena Dunham calls herself a human wastebasket. I am not a Lena Dunham fan. I don't know if you uh, would, would come out and say that too, but uh, what happened here? That's fair. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> That's fair to say. Lena Dunham is one of these uh, celebrities, actually, who was, you know, totally in the tank for Hillary Clinton, campaigned for her, and even threatened to move to Canada. If Trump won, of course, obviously not going to follow through on that pledge. I don't know if Canada would even want her, but she, after the election, has been kind of having a bit of a public meltdown. She went out to a ranch in Arizona to go on a spirit journey and talk to rocks and took some pictures of dogs and magic crystals. It's all, all very bizarre. I, I, I don't know what's going on, but I've just pull up her Instagram account and try to make some sense of it. Uh, that spirit journey didn't appear to be very successful in terms of finding solace and healing because a few days ago she posted this drunken rant on Instagram uh, video calling herself a human waste basket basket in a wasteoid after having drunk about one and a half glasses of wine, she said. And of course, Monday night, I believe she posted a photo of herself, a toilet selfie of herself, um, relieving herself in a restroom and posted that on Instagram, although that was uh, removed a few hours later uh, because of the obvious sort of confusion and backlash online. Why are you you know, putting this out in the public space, what's going on. I just think might be a sort of, she is a figurehead for the, the wider liberal celebrity community who's really lost their minds uh, trying to cope with the fact that Hillary did not win and that Trump is going to be the president. Andrew Stiles is Heat Street's politics editor. Andrew, great to have you on. Hope you'll come back. We appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Uh, team phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Let's talk for a minute about our sponsor this hour, Super Beats. Oh, yeah, Beats. They're very good for you. I don't know if you knew this, but Beats are a nutrition goldmine. They are, in fact, rich in vitamins, minerals, electrolytes, and dietary nitrates. You're like, oh, Buck, why do I need dietary nitrates? Because dietary nitrates convert to nitric oxide in the body, and that is the secret to how it works. But you don't have to eat beets for all the benefits of beets. You just have to have one teaspoon of super beets. Leaves you with no beet taste. And beet juice is a potent thing. Super beets, even more so. You should definitely check it out. I feel confident telling you about this because whenever I try super beets, I get a little boost of energy. And trust me, you need energy to do a three-hour radio show every day. So please call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. You get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You'll love the results you feel with your first free canister, guaranteed, or your money back. 800-311-4367, teambuckbeats.com, 800-311-4367. 
4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Show. All right, team, let's go to the phones here. Mike in upstate New York. You're on the Buck Sexton Show. You're in the Freedom Hut. Welcome, sir. Hey, how are you, Buck? I'm all right. A little hey, better now that you uh, called, Mike. Good, good to hear from a member of the team. I, Did uh, I just scare Mike away? There he is. There he is. Uh, <laughs> Come back. Where'd you go? <laughs> I'm here. I'm listening. What, what's, what's on your mind? Are you there? Yeah, Mike, yeah, but you got to talk to us, buddy. We can hear you. Go ahead. All right. Sorry, I, I, I can barely hear you. Uh, I'm calling about the, uh, the story there, the Pizzagate, um, General Flynn connection, um, fake news, obviously, all falls into that. But along the same lines, there was a real news story that didn't get much coverage that came out about the same time as all of this. Uh, and that was a major FBI thing called Cross Country. Um, apparently... For the last 10 years or so, they've been doing uh, sex trafficking uh, things. And back in mid-October this year, they had a news release on the FBI website where they arrested something like 250 people, uh, as well as recovered 82 juveniles, all involved in underground sex rings across the country. Um, so what does this have to do with pizza? What does this have to do with pizza game? What's that? So what does that have to do with Pizzagate? Well, it, there's a there's a real story that was similar. I just wonder how much that played into if somebody found that information and, and tried to tie it into Hillary Clinton and all these emails that were coming out about that time. It seems like a lot of effort to make this to to make a connection between those two things, Mike. I'll be honest with you. I, I mean, maybe, may but. <laughs> I don't. I don't really see a connection. I mean, you're you're saying there could be a connection, and I can't say there can't be a connection, but I don't see a connection. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. And that's that's what I'm saying. But I'm I'm wondering if uh, if somebody was grasping at straws. I mean, obviously there were a lot of people out there that wanted to do harm to to her and her campaign if they could, uh, you know, tie in a, an FBI news story that was released, but not really many people knew about, and try and tie it into her campaign and what have you. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was just sort of bizarre, though, Mike. I mean, when you look at what the... Oh, without the, a doubt. But that, yeah. that was this whole election uh, process this year, starting in the, in the uh, primaries, for sure. I guess nothing is nothing is too crazy for this election. I suppose that's uh, that's true. Um, I, I just, like I said, I just wanted to uh, plan a bug, because, like I said, I don't, I don't think that news story got covered at all, and that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it was, it was a, it was definitely a story. I mean, you read it, right? So it definitely got some coverage, but, uh, yeah, uh, Mike, thank you for calling in, man. Shields High, I appreciate you, uh, giving us, giving us some time on the air. Anyone else wants to ring 888-900-3393? Tell me a happy story, somebody, or, or give me a fun movie quote or see if you can stump me with a, an action movie quote. How about that? Um, let's get these lines lit up. we got our friend Charles Cook joining in a few minutes. He always cheers me up. Just let's sit here and be like, Charles, just. Just speak with that British accent, Charles. I just want to hear it. Uh, makes me happy. Uh, what else did we have? Oh, yeah. There we go. 
I'm trying to find this. There is this video that has gone viral, um, uh, and it's an old video though. It was uh, from June. If you haven't if you haven't seen it, it's pretty remarkable. So there's this guy down in Australia, and he's out pig hunting with his friend who had a terminal disease who unfortunately it's since this whole thing happened passed away and this kangaroo which is which when it's on its hind legs is is they estimate to be almost six feet tall it's a it's a big it's a big kangaroo uh grabs and you see the whole thing on the video i'm sure many of you have seen this it's it's gone totally viral on facebook over the last few days um you, you see this whole thing happening and this this guy is he sees his dog gets grabbed by the kangaroo around uh around the neck right so the the kangaroo puts the dog in a headlock and the dog's obviously in distress and the guy runs over um he runs over and the kangaroo does release the dog but then they sort of square off for a second and when they square off uh, and the kangaroo's on its back legs, this guy sort of puts up his hands like he's going to box, and he socks the kangaroo in the face. I mean, he gives it a shot. Not that bad. It stuns the kangaroo, doesn't knock it down, and then the guy walks away, and, you know, the dogs the dogs are free. The kangaroo's still standing, He's and, and then he sort of hops away. Um, a few things about this. First of all, I don't know about any of you, but, like, anything comes near my dog, and it is it is a legitimate... Uh, it is a, a legitimate self-defense, right? So if some animal is threatening your dog, I think you're allowed to take it upon yourself to do whatever is necessary to protect your dog. I know they're both animals, and there are people who would say, well, you know, why are you privileging one over the other? Because it's my dog. That's why. Um, but so this this guy punches the kangaroo in the face, and now people are saying that he should lose his job for this. Um, that, to me, is just insane. Uh, he obviously wasn't this wasn't like he was being cruel to an animal for no reason. And, and there was nothing in this. And then there's people say, oh, he should have just walked away. I don't know. I'd I'd be kind of scared if a kangaroo is on its rear legs and staring me down after it had. I mean, this kangaroo is big, too. It's kind of jacked. It looks like a weightlifter kangaroo. Uh, you see this whole thing. And the other part of this that I didn't know until reading about it, apparently kangaroos are really nasty. Uh, or they can be nasty. I'm sure they can also be sweet. And somebody will send me a YouTube of like a kangaroo, you know, that's s- snuggling people and being all nice. But if a kangaroo uh, hits you with its hind legs, it can disembowel you, according to the Nas- National Geographic post on this whole thing. Uh, so its hind legs are incredibly powerful. And it also can use its paws, its uh, its paws to try to scratch your face or your eyes. It tends to go for the eyes. It's always kind of weird when you, you know, animals have these instincts, you know, go for the eyes, the neck. Uh, chimpanzees, for example, know to go for their opponents, and that includes humans when they get really aggravated. They'll go for the hands uh, of a human or another, or, uh, you know, or another chimpanzee, uh, or they'll go for the face. Um, so that they know how to, because think about it, right? If you're trying to, if you're trying to take a human out of the fight, face and hands pretty much does it. Same thing would, would, would apply to. Uh, of fighting between two chimpanzees it also reminds this whole thing reminds me of the of the dust up from a few years ago that is also pretty remarkable video went went mega viral this kangaroo thing has gone totally viral Uh, and again i i think this guy did nothing wrong at all i i I like animals a lot 
You know, I, I probably even have a, I can't even explain, you know, how much I like dogs or why I, I like animals as much as I do, considering that I'm also a meat eater, but whatever. I like animals a lot. If a kangaroo was threatening the family French bulldog, I don't have a dog. My family here in the city does, though, and I sort of feel like it's my dog, but I grew up with a Boston Terrier. If a kangaroo was threatening the dog, that kangaroo, I would roundhouse kick that kangaroo. I mean, whatever is necessary, flying headbutt if, if need be to get it off my dog. Um, this guy out in California, Kevin Rose, who was the founder of something called Dig, D-I-G-G, he, this was all found on video, he saw his dog getting attacked by a raccoon. It was sort of a little white, uh, frou-frou-y dog being attacked by a raccoon. And he, it, and I, I gave him credit. I thought this was a particularly sort of brave thing. I mean, I, I feel like I'd rather take my chances with a kangaroo than like a, an angry, possibly rabid raccoon that's already, you know, biting and scratching my dog. Um, but he comes out, and this is all on video too, if you, uh, if you Google this. And the dog and the raccoon are, are you know, s- sort of scrapping, biting, everything. And he grabs the raccoon and hurls it down this staircase. And instead of people just saying, well, he's defending his dog, I understand we did that. They wanted him to get fired. The, the emotionalism with which people approach some of these, uh, these sort of unusual incidents, but anything that involves animals. I mean, it is, if you are found even under justifiable circumstances being mean to an animal in a video uh, of any kind online. I mean, there are people that start leveling death threats. I mean, they completely lose it. Anyway, if you haven't seen the kangaroo video, check it out. Back in a few minutes. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Sometimes you read a, a headline and you think to yourself, this is, they're, they're no way, right? There must be overselling this or they, they, they must be, uh, there's, there's something to this that I'm not catching or it's in, intentional hyperbole. You know, that was the case yesterday when I, I read to you from that uh, woman from the Washington, who wrote in the Washington Post that because she's so terrified of the future under Trump, she no longer wants to look for anyone to date. She no longer wants to have a, a partner. Uh, she no longer views herself as somebody who, um, you know, should be out there on the scene. Although she did also say at one point she went on six dates in one week. I was like, that's a lot of dates. Uh, but that's how upset she is. And she wants everybody to know it. That's how uh, angry she is about, or I shouldn't say angry, that's not the right word, uh, hopeless. That's the degree of hopelessness she feels because Donald Trump won the election and not Hillary Clinton. I This is some pretty childish stuff. This is really not the sort of thing that we should be elevating and pretending in any way, shape, or form is normal. Uh, it's quite bizarre. And it's just goes to show you there is a real difference, and, and I think this is one of the primary takeaways here, there's a real difference between the way that at least the conservatives and the, the Republicans that I know approach elections and politics and what it is on the left. On the left, it's such a part of identity. 
you know, I approach politics from the perspective of, yeah, of course, you know, there's right and wrong and there's a morality undergirding all this and how a society should be ordered, the obligations of the citizen to the state, all that, all that good stuff. Sure. But also just look, there are there are choices and there are some people that represent uh, a series of choices that are more likely to go in one direction or another. And I support those people. But if they don't win, okay, well, we'll deal with the alternative as best we can. And, you know, you sort of live to fight another day and it's not that big a deal. You know what I mean? That that's that should be, one would think, that should be the attitude. Uh, that should be the situation. And uh, what I find myself seeing time and time again is that there is this uh, sort of, there's been this sim, uh, signal given that if you were a Hillary supporter and you are distraught, there is no level of childishness that is too much, a childishness that is too much. There's no uh, level of sort of rending of garments, gnashing of teeth, you know, whining online, crying about this. It, that is all somehow or another fine. Um, and, and here's a, another example. It's still in DailyCaller.com. New York Magazine reported that many women in Washington, D.C. are dealing with President-elect Donald Trump's victory by cutting or dyeing their hair. Juliana Evans, who works for a performing arts company, told New York Magazine that she cried for three days following Trump's win. Quote, it was catastrophic. You know, there are a lot of good reasons that, you know, as a man or a woman, you could feel uh, like something is a catastrophe. There, there, there's... There's plenty of real stuff out there that can make you feel hopeless, that can be, that can be a, a, a super bummer. But one candidate in a presidential election winning over another, is especially given the history of, of Donald Trump, he's already, by the way, I think, starting to moder- moderate on some of his positions or become more moderate in some of his positions, that someone should, that Juliana Evans uh, would tell New York Magazine that she would cut off all of her hair because Trump won, that I don't get. Uh, that is just babyishness, um, and not to pick on one person. I mean, whatever, any that anybody would do this. First of all, what is that? I didn't know that was a thing. Like, if you're really upset, you cut off your hair. But I don't know. I guess Britney Spears, when she was having a really tough time, shaved her head. So people do do stuff like that. Uh, but this has become sort of a, a part of the culture for the time being. That there's nothing you can say that is too extreme, that is too, um, uh, you know, sort of self-indulgent. And, you know, just the more you can wallow in the horror that is a Trump victory, the the better. I mean, this is what people have been sort of promoting for a while. It it just does really serve to highlight, I think, a, a difference in the way. People on the left and the right approach these things. And, and even more than that, I have to say, I, I think it really shows. Um, I think it really shows that there's a, a distinction to be made between how emotionally involved in these things Republicans uh, get and how emotionally involved these Democrats get. I just don't remember any of this happening when Barack Obama won. I mean, I don't remember people crying and shaving their heads and doing all this stuff. And I, I think a part of it is that the Democrats have have, of course, they have pop culture. And so that then becomes an echo chamber for these kinds of activities. And when it, when, for a lot of for a lot of Americans, for a lot of people, they see stuff going. They see stuff being done a certain way and they think to themselves, OK, well, 
you know, if 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 so and so who's famous for I don't know, being attractive and being a reality show star or something like that. If so and so does it, then I guess it, you know, then it's cool for me to do too. It's okay for me to do too. And and that has an effect. But but also there's a um a constant, I think, a sort of wrapping up of one's identity and sense of self into democratic pol- into the politics of the democratic party that occurs. That's just really unhealthy. And you you see this when I I come across this in New York sometimes with people who I can tell if they and I, I really avoid speaking about politics in my private life as, as much as I possibly can. Um, but I can tell in my private life that they're that, that if I were to sort of let them know how I feel about a whole array of issues, right, a whole slew of things, um, they would react badly to it. Not they would disagree and not they would take a uh, sort of a, a, well, let's talk about something else approach, which is always fine with me, right? Anytime someone's like, hey, let's, instead of arguing over this political point, let's discuss our favorite, you know, our favorite food to make or something. I don't know, whatever. You know, let's, let's, let's make fun of poodles together. That's always fun to, that always brings people together. Uh, let's talk about how, honestly, Golden Doodle, overrated, just, just not, of the, of the mixed breeds that one gets, you know, I much prefer a puggle to a golden doodle. Um, this is the way that th- this is now so commonplace that you expect it, I think, from a lot of Democrats, that there will be this really bad sort of personal reaction to the recognition that somebody that they're spending time with, especially in a social in a social setting, uh, doesn't agree with them, doesn't take the same perspective on things, isn't really... Uh, on board with them on on whatever it may be, without even getting into the policies, right? You tell somebody, look, I've I I've known friends, I, I've had the situation where someone finds out that I'm a Republican, or they Google me before, let's say, a second date or maybe even a first date, and all of a sudden there's like a different, there's like change in attitude, and they want to start asking, well, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that? And it's not that if we got into the issue, I think even they would be offended by my position. It's that to be a Democrat is not to be a member of a political party. It's really to be a member of um, cult is too strong a word, but it's to be a a member of an identity group. You know, we always talk about Democrats in the vein of identity politics and how they play identity politics and they want to break everybody down by, you know, by race, ethnicity, background and all this other stuff, you know, sexual orientation and what we what really you see is that yeah the, the Democrats do identity politics, but being a Democrat is a form of identity politics too, in a really profound way, in, in a way that influences uh, many of those of uh, many of those around us who I think now feel like that identity is both threatened by a Trump presidency and needs to be. Uh, needs to be reaffirmed. You know, there, there needs to be sort of a moment of, okay, uh, the Democratic Party is in a difficult position right now, so who wants to stand up and be the sort of loudest, most shrill voice imaginable in favor of the Democratic Party and to sort of just be willing to denounce at all costs in a scorched earth kind of way Donald Trump and all of his supporters and the entirety of the Republican Party. And that's how I think you get what would otherwise be very obviously um, 
a form of hysteria from a lot of people. That's how I think you 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 have to see all of this. Um, because I, I'm just, you know, the story after story about these people that, oh, and, you know, the celebrities said, I'm going to leave the country. First of all, none of them left the country, right? So we all know that it's social signaling, it's virtue signaling, and it's just sort of positioning themselves for public public consumption, right? This is the way that they want to be seen. Um, but anyway, that's women cutting their hair, people who don't want to go on dates anymore. You know, man, if, if I thought we really did have a tyrant running the country and there wasn't much time left on the clock... I wouldn't stop going on dates. I'd go on a lot of dates. A very different point of view. Although right now I'm only, I'm of course not single, but I'm just saying, theoretically. Um, now I only go on dates with one person. Uh, I will be back 888-900-3393. Give me a few. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. We're joined now by our friend Charles Cook. He is editor of National Review Online. His latest piece on NationalReview.com is Democrats finally wake up to the dangers of illiberalism. Charles, great to have you, sir. Thank you for having me. I just wanted to give you a chance to tell us a bit about the argument you're making in this piece. It seems that there are liberals who are all freaked out that we're on a we're on a descent into illiberalism. But when did it start, and why now? Well, I don't wish to whitewash in any way, Donald Trump. You've had me on your show throughout the primaries and the general election, and you know my view on the man. I do think that it's time for us to wait and see. He hasn't done anything yet. He's president-elect. He will have a Congress that will have its own ideas. Uh, I am not one to freak out over uh, what-ifs unless they are very well-grounded. That is not the approach that has been taken uh, by the left and uh, i see i see the implication everywhere that history started on november 8th of this year or that at that point donald trump's flaws uh, came to the fore uh, and were egregious were separate from the rest of the system uh, were divorced from the continuum and that's simply not the case Uh, i'm quite happy to and have criticized for example donald trump's Uh, views on the First Amendment, but they can't be uh, imagined outside of the fact that a majority of Democrats wish to ban so-called hate speech, uh, that Hillary Clinton campaigned on repealing part of the First Amendment and overturning the Citizens United decision, uh, and uh, that uh, college campuses across the nation uh, are inhospitable to those who have different ideas. I think Trump's not only a a backlash against some of that, um, but he exists on that continuum. The ideas that Trump is forwarding uh, are not new. Uh, They might be more pronounced than those who came before him, um, but they're not new. I think across the board, culturally and politically, uh, Democrats, progressives need to understand Uh, that they have strengthened the presidency. They've undermined faith in separation of powers. They've cast the Constitution as a relic. Uh, They have called dissenters all sorts of unpleasant names in the Obama years. They've picked up some pretty egregious policy positions of their own. For example, uh, they wanted to strip the Second Amendment rights of American citizens based on their 
being on a list. And suddenly they're faced with this man who inherits much of that power and also the same cultural backdrop. Uh, and they can't see what they did uh, to uh, enable him. As I say, he hasn't done anything yet. But even when he does, uh, we should be looking at his actions in a 30 or 40 year context, uh, not in a, a two month context. Yeah, I see these people going on TV. There's one in particular that I've, I've seen a few times on Morning Joe um, who keep saying that, you know, that we are at that we're essentially at like DEFCON one for democracy right now in this country. And I, I feel like, well, first of all, nothing has happened yet. And second of all, a lot of the objections that they raise are have corollaries, if not mirror images, with what Obama's been doing for eight years. And it just seems so obvious to me. Well, I think that's right. And um, I think one of the problems here is that there's a tendency uh, among Democrats um, and among progressive academics uh, to see Republican complaints as being uh, part of the culture war or as being frivolous, um, but to see Democratic complaints as being inherently true. I mean, if you look at, for example, Trump's comments on uh, the integrity of our elections, uh, I do think um, that they've been unhelpful. Um, I do think they've been worse than most uh, of the comments that have been made uh, in the last 50 years within American uh, electoral history. Uh, and that's a problem. Um, and so if a progressive says, well, that is an example of the undermining of a democratic norm, I'm happy to agree. Uh, but there are other democratic norms over the last few years uh, that have been uh, abused too. Um, Hillary Clinton, for example, during the third debate with Donald Trump, cast the Supreme Court as if it were a super legislature. That's the undermining of a democratic norm. Uh, as I say, the violations of due process and proposed violations of due process we've seen over the last eight years, uh, that's the undermining uh, of a democratic norm. Uh, forcing nuns to pay for uh, birth control is the undermining of a democratic norm, the norm being religious pluralism, religious tolerance. Uh, you know, time and time again, culturally uh, and uh, politically, the norms that we have grown accustomed to have been pushed. Barack Obama was struck down nine to nothing in the Supreme Court. Right. And uh, that didn't bother them. And all this stuff does. Charles, we're at a hard right. break, but I appreciate you joining us. Charles Cook, editor and chief of National Review Online. Great to have you, sir. Team, hour three coming up. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. Hour three is with us now, and of course, today is Pearl Harbor Day, so we wanted to talk a bit about it. We're joined now by Dr. John McManus. He's a professor at Missouri University of Science and Technology and an, an expert uh, on the issue. Uh, we're going to talk about the 75th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which is today, of course, led to the beginning of the Second World War. Dr. McManus, thank you for calling in. Hi, Buck. Good to be with you. 
All right. So it's been 75 years since Pearl Harbor. Uh, tell us a bit, if you would, about just sort of the, the lead up to and, and, and what it was like that day. Yeah, the you know the lead up to Pearl Harbor is about a two year uh, process that uh, the, the U.S. and Japan their relations get progressively worse, and, and the main issue is um, you know the, the kind of a balance of power in Asia. Um, Japan feels it needs resources to be on par with the U.S. and other Western powers. It doesn't have them, and it wants to get them at the expense of China and you know portions of the Pacific. And the United States doesn't like that, and so. Uh, you know, just things deteriorate from there uh, until the Japanese decide they're going to have to launch not just the Pearl Harbor attack, but also a whole series of attacks in Asia and the Pacific, of which Pearl Harbor is just kind of the, the centerpiece. So by the time this happens on December 7, 1941, you know, it, it, there's been a lot of twists and turns. It's been a long time coming, and the Japanese feel uh, that this is the way they can achieve some level of sort of economic and resource parity with the United States and military parity if they can destroy the Pacific fleet. So that's the purpose of the, the attack on Pearl Harbor, is to, to basically take out uh, American naval power in uh, in the Pacific. And what are some of the, the interesting uh, facts from, from the day of the actual uh, attack itself? What are things, I mean, we all know that uh, Japanese b- bombers uh, went after the U.S. fleet, you know, at Pearl Harbor. But what are some of the things that you know? You're somebody who's written a dozen books on the U.S. R- role in World War II. Uh, what are some of the things that just people should remember or or should should keep in mind on the 75th anniversary of this massive sneak attack on the United States? Yeah, there's a number of things. I mean, I think the most important thing from our perspective, looking all these years later. There's 2,403 Americans who are killed in these attacks, and about 1,100 of them were aboard the USS Arizona, which is hit very quickly, capsizes, sinks, and it basically entombs these sailors who are still there today. Now, the Arizona, as you probably know, is a is a memorial even today that you can visit at Pearl Harbor. Um, and, you know, 68 of those who were killed were actually civilians who were in the Honolulu area, and they were killed by American anti-aircraft fire because they didn't know what was going on. And when you're firing ordnance like that, what goes up must come down. And so you have just unlucky people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time. You have uh, you have uh, Air Force uh, personnel who are at a place called Hickam Field, which is like right adjacent to Pearl Harbor, and <clears throat> they're they're sitting down to breakfast that morning, and you know, the Japanese just scored a direct hit. Uh, on this barracks uh, where they're eating, uh, bombs just go straight through and just kills dozens, if not hundreds of people, almost in the blink of an eye. Uh, so it's it's that kind of event that's just so profoundly traumatic. And as we get more distance from it, it's harder to, to wrap your mind around that, on that kind of quick loss of life. And of course, then there's, you know, the ships that are sunk, uh, most notably eight battleships. But you know, five are raised later and repaired and used elsewhere in the war. So, you know, the ships could be could be replaced eventually. The planes could be replaced. There's about 150, 200 of them lost, mostly on the ground. The facilities could be repaired, but the lives that were lost obviously could never be replaced. And uh, that's what like really tends to stay with me all these years later after you know studying it so much. In your research into this, one of the questions, of course, that always comes up, uh, what people always want to know is. How could it be that the U.S. was caught so unaware um, at Pearl Harbor? How was it that the sneak attack seemed to, to catch us not, not, in a way that there was really very limited ability to, to repel it at all? Um, how, could, how did we not see this coming? What were some of the factors that led to that? 
to sort of borrow a term we use nowadays, it's kind of the perfect storm. Um, you know, the Japanese are, are running a lot of different operations in the sense of preparing a number of different attacks, you know, from Hong Kong to uh, Malaya and Singapore to Indonesia, Burma, China, Philippines, so on and so forth. And they, you know, the U.S. intelligence has a pretty good sense that Japan is preparing to go to war. I mean, we know that uh, the, the day or two before the Pearl Harbor attack, but there isn't necessarily enough good information that says they're going to be able to sail this fleet within about 300 miles of Oahu and launch 370 aircraft and catch us flat-footed. Um, that's the part that's really sort of astonishing all these years later. And even so, um, the, the U.S. had a couple of opportunities to, to find out about this at the last minute and perhaps stave off, you know, you know what was something of a disaster and perhaps save some lives. What I mean by that, um, part of the attack, and we tend to overlook this, part of the attack was little mini-submarines that the Japanese were going to infiltrate near the mouth of the harbor, and they were supposed to sit there and, and uh, attack any ships that were coming out of the harbor to escape the air raid. Air raid you know, So um, one of these subs is detected by the USS Ward, a, a Navy destroyer, and is sunk about an hour or so before the, the plane struck Pearl Harbor. Uh, so, you know, they're trying to get the word to the, the higher-ups, uh, you know, back at Pearl Harbor in the command structure. And by the time they get the message, well, the planes are literally right overhead and dropping bombs. Uh, the planes are also detected on radar by sets in northern Oahu, and no one really knows or understands enough about what they're seeing to realize what's about to happen. Um, so, you know, I think the Japanese got away with what was a major mistake, a major screw-up with their submarines. Uh, it, but it just, you know, fortunately from an American perspective, it didn't cost them as it ought to have. What was the what was supposed to be the, the next step after Pearl from the Japanese uh, strategist's point of view at the, at the top of their military command? So they were going they were going to disable the U.S. fleet. And, and then what were the sort of steps they were hoping for after that vis-a-vis -vis the United States? What the Japanese are really interested in at the beginning of the war is conquering what was called in those days the Dutch East Indies. Nowadays, it's Indonesia. And the reason is it was just completely resource-rich. You had oil, rubber, tin, bauxite, iron ore, all this kind of stuff that Japan really needed in order to be a first-class industrial and military power. And so a lot of their operations are geared toward taking over the Dutch East Indies. And to do that, they have to crush British imperial power, too, which is prevalent like in Malaya, Singapore, Burma, um, and Hong Kong, of course. So Japanese operations are geared toward that. And then they, they're going to have to also neutralize the U.S.-controlled Philippines. So what they're hoping is that since the Allies are so unprepared for war, the first six to nine months or so after hostilities, that the Japanese will be able to conquer this resource-rich empire uh, and, you know, basically cripple the U.S. fleet and thus, you know, America's greatest weapon to strike back um, and negotiate some sort of end to the war on that basis that would be to their advantage. But the whole strategy is really undercut by this surprise attack on Pearl Harbor because the American people perceive it as so treacherous and so wrong and are so angry about it that they're determined to stand together and fight to the end. So right there, the Japanese strategy for a short war is undercut. And obviously, as we all know, a long war did not really favor them. So essentially, the Japanese were hoping that they could get what they needed in terms of their resources, seize these different territories, and then the U.S. wouldn't want to go. You know, then it's just, okay, we have this. 
let's not let's not go to all out war. But of course, Pearl then led to a consensus among the American population, largely speaking, that we should go to war and that we weren't going to stop until they had unconditional surrender. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that was that was what the determination of the American people was in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. And obviously, there's a there's a kind of racial cultural element to it as well. There's there's a lot of hatred on both sides in that regard. But you know what really creates that is what the American people see is just a completely treacherous kind of act at, at Pearl Harbor. So um, the Japanese have kind of undercut themselves from the start, and, and their their war concept is based around something called Yamato Damashiki, which is basically means Japanese fighting spirit that that will prevail, that that's the that sort of that's what tips the balance toward victory and war. Um, and they're right in the sense that human will is what decides wars. If you really like, study the history of wars, that's what the tendency is. But what the Japanese overlook is what would happen if you end up against an opponent who has just as much will to fight as you do, but also has more stuff, you know, more, right. a stronger economy, <laughs> more industry. This is like the, the French are, are, French military colleges leading up to the, the First World War. What, Elan? They were teaching that it was essentially spirit and full frontal assault was the way that you win conflicts. Uh, they didn't take into account the whole machine gun emplacement aspect and, and, and heavy artillery of warfare. They just figured you mass in the center, you're brave, and you win. It was a very bad strategy going into the First World War, and clearly the Japanese in the Second World War um, sort of mirrored that sense of if we just have enough bravado and enough willingness, uh, we can outlast them and we can eventually defeat them. Absolutely. So they, um, I mean, they undercut it from the start. If you don't mind, I want to ask. I mean, you've seen the Pearl Harbor movie, right? Which is oh, yeah. problematic on a whole bunch of you know, from from just a, <laughs> yeah. a film critic perspective, is problematic a whole bunch of ways. But the actual attack itself, the way it's portrayed in the movie, uh, taking out the the actors and the sort of dramatic, uh, you know, some some of the dramatic stuff that they obviously inserted to make the characters uh, central to what was going on. But the the sort of the, the visuals and the overall way that attack came together, would you say that that's is, was it pretty accurate? I think the best part of that film is that it does succeed in conveying the shock, the trauma, uh, the the uh, you know the human carnage that happens right when the attack occurs. Um, I think that part is pretty well done. As a literal-minded military historian, as most of us are, and that's why no one ever wants to see movies with us, um, it's distracting to see post-World War II-era um, naval hardware <laughs> that's supposedly there in 1941. Uh, you know, So that gets a little little dicey, but I, I do think that they succeeded in portraying the drama of the moment, the trauma of the moment, the difficulties inherent, uh, the shock of basically being in a peacetime mentality one moment and literally five minutes later you're in the middle of a war. Um, and your whole world, everything changes. And I, I did think that part was pretty well done. And the uh, some of the, the, the sequences that they show, I mean, there were there were people who must have seen before the actual raid. I mean, they must have seen the, the planes coming. And I, I think I read earlier in the week uh, that some of the survivors of, of Pearl talked about being so the Japanese pilots uh, flying so low at some points where they could actually some of the pilots waved to them. Are there any sort of personal oh, yeah. anecdotes uh, that that you came across in your research and writing the books you've done in the Second World War that you just want to share? Most definitely, and yeah, I've won, some of the really fascinating ones I've just been working on recently, actually, because I'm doing a two volume history of the 
the Army and the Pacific Asia Theater, and of course, Pearl Harbor is where that story begins. And uh, I found a number of accounts from people who were based at uh, Schofield Barracks, which was uh, the main Army uh, base in Oahu, and it's about it's about a dozen to a dozen and a half miles north of, the, of Pearl Harbor, and it's one of the targets that the Japanese hit. And so you have these guys who are basically lined up for breakfast, and all of a sudden now they're in the middle of an air raid. And uh, the Japanese are flying around with so little opposition that these guys are wearing headscarves and looking at individual soldiers on the ground and waving to them uh, and, you know, smiling at them, you know, almost in a friendly way. It's almost surreal. And the Americans, some of the the, the, uh, the stories that, that I've uncovered, the, the Americans aren't really sure how to respond, whether to wave back or shoot at the guy or, or just what you actually do in that circumstance. Why um, weren't they? I mean, the one thing that you do see, and in, in, uh, not to, I mean, to return to a movie that I, I would say is, is a overall a bad movie, uh, but one part of it that I feel like watching this, everyone just wonders, how come there wasn't more of an ability, even caught unaware, to, to fight back? I mean, what, what would have been necessary, you know, the... the was it just they, they hit the planes, they hit U.S. planes on the ground before they could get up in the air? They, they didn't have, you know, why were, I mean, the ships were at harbor, so obviously they're sitting ducks, but they have lots of uh, heavy weaponry on those gun decks. I mean, what, what would have been necessary or, or why was it impossible for them to sort of mount more of a counterattack? What were the factors at play? You know, a big part of it is that the military forces all around, not just in Pearl Harbor, but everywhere, are in a peacetime mode, which basically one symptom of that maybe that explains the larger answer to the question is um, the ammo lockers are locked and of course in peacetime every piece of ordinance has to be uh, accounted for you know in an administrative way so you know you're having a hard time aboard ships or or in an anti-aircraft battery or wherever you're having a hard time actually getting to your ammo and you actually have supply sergeants who are kind of still in peacetime mode saying wait wait a minute no i need orders from above before i can allow this storage locker to be open and people are, are sort of like are you kidding me and so you know sometimes they're they're sort of brushing past these guys sledgehammering to try and get into their ammo lockers and obviously that takes time and the ammo itself sometimes is not prepared properly uh, some of it's antiquated and so that's a preparation and supply issue too um, and it's just the surprise and shock too that so many people have like what is going on and and uh, you know to, to in transition sometimes makes it takes 20 or 30 minutes and by then the japanese have been able to drop whatever bombs they want so they it's not as if they're flying around with impunity but it's not quite the opposition you would hope but i will say this um if you were one of those japanese aviators you definitely wanted to be in the first wave rather than the second wave by the time the second wave comes in you know about an hour an hour and a half after the original attack you know the harbor defenses are pretty well alerted at that point and there's a lot of ordnance going up after them uh, and that's when they take most of their losses. They lost 29 planes, which were not inconsiderable losses for them. Dr. John McManus is an award-winning professor at Missouri University of Science and Technology. He's a military historian and an author of a dozen books on the U.S. role in World War II. More on Dr. McManus at johnmcmanus.com. Doc, appreciate you joining today. Thank you very much for calling in. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network.
888-900-3393. Tobin in Ohio. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, my friend. What is up? Hey, Buck. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I was actually a little bit surprised he didn't mention the fact that it was Sunday on the, on, uh, on the particular day the Japanese decided to attack, uh, which, you know. But uh, a lot of people probably had weekend shore leave and whatnot, but... Uh, yeah, it was a I, Sunday I morning. To go back to, and, yeah. and people were people, people were attending uh, religious services off base. Yeah, that's an important point. Yeah. I also find it interesting um, that they that they put the they wanted to put the uh, planes, uh, the U.S. airfield. What was it? Wingtip to wingtip to make it harder for them to be sabotaged. If I recall, I think I read that too. <laughs> yeah, which made them easy targets. Right, just made them even more. It, it grouped the sitting ducks together as like one big duck. Unfortunately. Yep, uh, and actually. Chain reaction explosions did have, occur greatly. And also, they, they, he might not have mentioned, even some planes that managed to do, that in the initial attack, managed to take off, in some cases were shot down by our own uh, gunners because just in, the, just in the insanity, they didn't know who they were just shooting at everybody. Yeah, so, no, I can imagine yeah, that would happen. happen, certainly, yeah. Um, I'll get back to your point. Uh, about uh, why Democrats seem to be so apoplectic on this, you know, this whole thing. I think that we forget because we look at the map and we see uh, the, the Republican-held counties and districts and, and the, the minute Democrat by comparison counties and districts held. But if you actually just came to this planet from another planet and looked at our media and looked at our mass media, print, news, TV, whatever, you would have a different understanding about who exactly ran this country, who informed this country, what this country really believed in completely. And I think that I think it goes back to the old point where the person you had people walking through the streets after election day going, How could Trump win? I don't know anybody who voted for him kind of comment. Yeah. No, think I think it about? was it was a huge shock, uh, a huge shock, not just to the media, but to a lot of people that rely on the mainstream media for their view, for their sort of portrait of what America's like and who Americans vote for. Tobin from Ohio. Great call, my friend. Thanks for your uh, thanks for your, your time and your facts and shields high. Um, team, we've got more phone lines are still open. Eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three. We'll see what we hit in just a few minutes. Be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. Got some calls up on the screen, team. Let's take him. Ryan in Colorado, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Hey, what's shaking, Buck? Just shaking and baking, my friend. What's going on? I'm calling about that kangaroo. I have to agree with you. That sucker stacked, man. Yeah, he, he looked like he had spent some real time in the gym working those pecs. Yeah, him and his bros shooting juice or something. For sure. So you saw that, right? I mean, I, I got I, I squaring off against a six-foot-tall kangaroo, that's... That's no small feat. I give the, I give that dude credit who uh, who defended his dog. Yeah, he defended his dog and he defended the situation. I was calling to, 
you know, the people throwing shade on it, once you filter out the people that would throw it either direction, if he'd walked away, they would have called him a wimp. Or if he stood his ground, they'd be hating on him. But the ones that are actually concerned haven't been in a situation with a wild animal or a dangerous situation and uh, would probably do the same thing, you'd hope, if they didn't freeze in fear. But, uh, yeah, my wife and I were attacked by a couple pit bulls, and uh, there are people that are even questioning how I dealt with that. But if I hadn't, we'd been toast, man. Wait, your wife and you were attacked by pit bulls? Well, how did this end? Tell me this, what happened. Well, we were walking through the main park. We had our dogs, and at this particular time, we had one of our older dogs. She was kind of my little battle buddy there for a while. Don't want to get too much into that. I'll get shook up. But, um, yeah, we're walking through, and I just had this weird feeling. My wife gave me this knowing look. Now to nowhere, this guy comes screaming through on a bicycle with these two pit bulls chasing after him. And I'm thinking, oh, man, and there's kids in the park, and they're on the playground equipment and everything. But they saw us walking with our dogs and came after us. And uh, this is true. What kind of dogs story. did you have with you, just out of curiosity, as we're setting uh, the scene here? We, we had our, our baby girl, Addie. She's a golden retriever. And the other ones, uh, she was an Australian shepherd. I mean, so this uh, is obviously a very uh, dangerous and, and frightening situation. So what, what do you do? So you've got your two dogs with you. You see two pit bulls on the loose. Well, all happened? the people throwing shade, I walk around with a, with a taser and pepper spray and all the non-lethal deterrents, right? And uh, Really? So you yeah. just happen to have pepper spray and a taser on you? Yeah, so my wife and I have been, she teases, teases me a lot before this because I go through the routines and what we do and how you handle it. But animals are smart, and so this pit bull, the, the lead one, the, there's always one kind of in charge in, a, in an animal situation, he comes at me, and he was too quick for me, uh, and I'm not a slow guy, and and so I had to kind of bait him in, and I tased him in the mouth, and pit bulls are a different breed, and it kind of shook it off. It backed off a little bit, but it was kind of drawing me away from the, we kind of centralized all together, and it was drawing me away a little bit, and the other one started to flank, and so I told my wife she had to use her pepper spray, and she pepper sprayed the other one, and... Uh, you know, it kind of it, it stopped it dead in its tracks, but it even thought a little bit if it was still going to charge. And then from there, it was, it was just too long of a story to get into. I basically fought them off once they were kind of in a weakened state and uh, a lot of cursing and swearing and crazy Did stuff. Did you get, you know? I mean, I assume you got bit. Uh, you know what? One, by the grace of God, but two, by standing my ground, animals respect authority, even the wild ones. And that's what that dude, that's my bigger point to that dude that went ahead and popped it in the nose, you know, or in the head, it, he probably protected himself because the animal's realizing, yeah, this dude will fight back. So, um, so we didn't get bit. Um, Addie had been bit a couple other times by loose dogs, and that's why we kind of kept up in our game and why I upped it to a taser. We had pepper spray and stuff. So but, your dogs weren't hurt, and you and your wife were fine, and you guys just happened to have pepper spray and tasers on you, which that's, you know, not a lot of people walk around with both of those. Well, that's the throw in the shade. People that don't know and haven't been in the situation, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of haters out there and think I'm, I overdo it, but it saved us big um, because these dogs were no joke, man. So. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like it. Uh, well, Ryan, thank you for calling in, man, from Colorado. Shields high. Pepper spray yeah, high, that, apparently. Yeah, that kangaroo was stacked, man. Yeah, kangaroo was. It was a jacked kangaroo. It was ready, ready to throw down. Uh, I'll just tell you a quick story. I went to visit a a Blaze colleague of mine at his at his home, 
in the uh, in the Midwest, and he's he lives in a. I mean, it's not that rural, but it's in the woods. And I remember walking the door. Uh, I'm walking the door. It's the first few minutes of of, of coming to his house. And it's one of my colleagues, the Blaze. I'll ask him later if I can if I can name him and, and sort of give more of the details of the story. But I'll tell you what happened now. So I'm there. I'm visiting for the weekend, and and a. He's got a black lab that comes out, and I, I love labs are great. Obviously, I love labs, and black lab comes out, and it's a sweet dog, and you know we're sort of getting getting acquainted first time. Dog's tail's wagging, and then all of a sudden I see the dog, and it kind of, you know, had that whole hair on the back stand up. You know, dog sort of points and growls, and I see, and out of a woodpile right near the, uh, out of a woodpile right near the front door, uh, a raccoon comes out. And it, and I had never seen a raccoon do do this before. It sort of stood up on its back legs, and put its arms out, like it was kind of like, "Why don't you come at me?" You know, like like bring it. I mean, the raccoon sort of took this very aggressive posture that I'd never seen a raccoon do before. I don't see a lot of raccoons here in New York City, although they do have them here. There's actually a a group of them that are, uh, you know, getting fed by tourists in the southern edge of Central Park. Side note. Uh, but yeah, it takes this sort of it stands up and it, it kind of you know almost like it's in like this kung fu position, like it's gonna you know karate chop the lab, and uh, the uh, homeowner, uh, my blaze colleague, went. I, I, I'm sort of sitting there and I'm just like you know city boy. I'm like, what is going on here? We've got a, the lab is sort of squaring. You know, the lab is growling and everything, and this all happened pretty quickly. But uh, my blaze colleague runs inside, comes out with uh, I, it was a snub nose 38, I think. And, uh, and he just put one, he just put the raccoon down right there. I mean, it all happened in about, you know, I want to say 30 or 40 seconds. And, uh, yeah, that was the end of the raccoon. But it was daytime, by the way. I mean, so there was that concern, too. I don't know how. I mean, I think maybe the raccoon was, you know, trying to hide out in the wood pile and got, and then when the dog came outside. So I don't know if I'm not going to say, you know, seemed like it was definitely rabid. But man, that ra- raccoons, when they want to be nasty, they're nasty. They're scary little dudes. And this wasn't a big raccoon either, but he he was he was uh, trying to trying to get uh, all up in the Labrador Retriever's face. So anyway, Labrador wasn't bitten; everything was fine. The uh, raccoon is, I guess, in raccoon heaven with a with a thirty eight snub nose round of the chest. He's 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 gone. Um, and I was and that was it was like welcome to the woods, city boy. That was kind of the that was kind of the vibe for me. I was like, oh wow, who knew? Uh, Joe in San Francisco, you're on the Bucks Action Show. Welcome. Shields high, Buck. Hey, Shields high. Yeah, you know, that kangaroo looked like he, uh, he might have been juicing. Maybe, maybe they ought to give him a blood test. I agree. He was a very, anyway. very, very robust kangaroo. What else <laughs> is on your mind, Joe? Yeah, well, um, going back to your observations about the, uh, <clears throat> liberal hysteria that's going on right now, uh, in a spirit of bipartisanship and reaching across the aisle to Lena Dunham and Cher and all the people in Hollywood who haven't yet left the nation, which I am patiently waiting for, and uh, and their fellow travelers, a guy named Larry Correa. I don't know if you ever read him. He's an author, but he also is a gun expert. He writes a lot of interesting stuff about gun control, gun laws, um, he has penned something called a handy guide for liberals who are suddenly interested in gun ownership. And given that they're convinced that, you know, the dark night of fascism is now going to descend upon America because of the election of Donald Trump, 
I know you've got some liberal listeners out there, and maybe they should check it out. Larry Correa, a handy guy for liberals who are suddenly interested in gun ownership. And it actually does have some good pointers. There's plenty of snark in it, too. So uh, interesting read for me. Funny. You might enjoy it. And uh, just kind of a fun poke at, uh, I guess, the uh, the current nonsense that's, that's going on, the nonsense of the week. Uh, so. What what are some of the things that he says in the book, though? I mean, give give us a you're giving us a little bit of a preview, but so what's? Well, what's... It, it's not a book; it's it's a blog post. I'm sorry, the blog um, post and, I meant. Yeah, yeah. So um, he says, judging by your social media over the last few days, many liberals have been utterly terrified. So that's it. Then his pointers are, you know, if you haven't alienated all your gun owning friends, then you could ask them for some advice on where to go and what to look for. If you live in a blue state, you might have a hard time finding a range, but if you live in a purple state, you might have a little more luck. Go there first. Um, you know, a lot of stuff like that. Just uh, the, ba- the basics on how to investigate purchasing and owning a firearm. And, and there's a section on how self-defense works. He's trained a lot of people. He is pretty good. I've read quite a bit of uh, his stuff. Learn how guns work. Um, how gun laws work. He knows a lot about the law, so that's helpful. Um, And it's pretty well summarized how to buy a gun, um, get better. Now you need to learn how to shoot. It doesn't work like the movies. Um, What about Doomsday? Particularly good there. So, you know, it's all good stuff. I recommend it to your listenership. Absolutely. Okay. (laughs) Joe and San Fran, anything else for us? You good? Uh, I think I'm good for now. Thanks for taking. Oh, one last thing. My father fought in the Pacific theater and he was not at Pearl Harbor, but you know, days like today and veterans day, I think of him, we lost him in uh, July of 2015. Um, but, uh, well, we honor him for his service. We thank you and and his family for, for him serving and, and God bless. And, uh, Joe, thank you very much. Thank you very much for calling him, my friend. Good to talk to you. Shields. Hi, uh, team. We will be back right after the break. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. I don't know about all of you, but I, I'm a coffee drinker. Um, I rely on coffee to sort of help wake me up in the morning. It's probably a bad thing. I know people would tell me you don't want to ever be relying on any substance. But look, we all need a couple of vices. What was it? Churchill said, uh, you can't trust a man without at least at least uh, one or two redeeming vices, something like that. Where um, every man should have a redeeming vice. You know, coffee is about as... Coffee's about as wild as I get. Um, occasionally a little, little tequila, but not, not that much lately. Uh, so I drink coffee in the morning, and it's a ritual. You know, I like to actually, if I can, if I can actually go out and, uh, and get the coffee, meaning you know, I don't just sort of make it in an office or at home. That's my preference. And I just think this is interesting. Starbucks, which has become one of the sort of, I don't know, a, a highly recognizable American brand, and some people are very, very defensive. They really like Starbucks. And I, I think I told you that inside of Langley, there's a Dunkin' Donuts and a Starbucks, and people made a lot of judgments about you based on which one you went to. I mean, this is really something we discussed in the office. You know, the uh, 
ops guys, ground pounders, uh, the sort of more field oriented folks like to think of themselves more as actually Dunkin' Donuts drinkers, you know, whereas the uh, Starbucks was more for the sort of latte, the latte crowd, you know, oh, you're going to get a cinnamon spice, pineapple, mocha, soy, whatever, grande frap thing. Um, whereas you go to Dunkin' Donuts, you're getting coffee, just getting coffee, cause, you know, America. Uh, also, it was it was we actually used to refer to it in shorthand as red. Or were you a red state coffee or blue state coffee guy? Blue state being, of course, Starbucks. Red state being Dunkin' Donuts. I think Dunkin' Donuts is owned by the Carlisle Group, by the way, the huge uh, private equity firm. So uh, Starbucks realizes that it's not sort of the it's not the the new hotness. There's actually a quote in this piece that I'm reading that I read um, that said that Starbucks is millennial. It's considered the millennials' parents' coffee house. And there's all these sort of upstarts that are cooler, better. They sell things like a Cortado. I don't know how many of you even know what that is. I just found out myself a few months ago. Uh, there's another one that I also... Oh, a flat white, which is a thing that you can get in some coffee houses. And so Starbucks has decided they're going to try to broaden their brand or, or sort of reinvigorate their brand, really, by creating an elite wing of Starbucks. You know, this is like the Navy SEALs of Starbucks. Um, and they're going to be selling you $10 cups of coffee at reserve bars. So they're creating this sort of elite label. You know, this is, kind of reminds me of like uh, certain fashion houses will have different levels. You know, there's, uh, which I know a little more about these days because of, you know, girlfriends, the girlfriend. But uh, Ralph Lauren uh, has purple label, which is their super, exp- I mean, it's really expensive stuff. A purple purple label suit is like four or five grand. Or you can go to the outlet stores and you know you get you get like cargo shorts for ten bucks, right? I mean that's you know RL is sort of a, a breadth of different things. But Starbucks is hoping to sort of become the uh, to to have its elite coffee wing, so that it's no longer considered sort of pedestrian and for the hoi polloi. Uh, it just goes to show you how frou frou the American public overall has gotten. There was a time when Starbucks was you know sort of trendy, and that's where you'd go and you'd buy your Alanis Morissette CD. Oh yeah. That's right. It's like rain on your wedding day. You buy that at the checkout counter and you'd have your you'd order your venti soy mocha and you'd order and just knowing the lingo was sort of cool. And now Starbucks is kind of a little little culture, a little more mock. I think it does a pretty good job. I wonder if this is really going to work, though. Um, They're going to open these stores initially in. Well, I would assume Chicago. No, in Seattle, obviously, in Chicago. Yeah. And they're going to they're going to be selling coffee that costs as much as $50 for an eight ounce bag. I just, I don't know if Starbucks can create it. You know, this would be sort of like McDonald's all of a sudden deciding that they're going to sell, you know, steak tartare as well, like a special back room. I don't know if they're going to be able to make that switch, but as a coffee drinker, I find this interesting and I will watch this. And if I get a chance to drink a $10 coffee at one of these Starbucks locations, I will certainly report back to you. Uh, Team, thank you for joining me today for the show. I know it was a little uh, slow going in the beginning for me, just because I was trying to uh, wake up a wake, wake up a bit today with the grayness in the sky and the air. But you know what? The team always always gets me fired up, and uh, I appreciate very much you spending some time with me in the Freedom Hut. Please download the show, share it with a friend or two. It's the best thing you can possibly do to help keep the Freedom Hut chugging along. And I'll be with you live tomorrow on the next day. As always, my friends, my family, shields high. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.